Hi there and welcome to Crikey Calling, the ever-changing Crikey podcast. I'm Bernard Keane and joining me today is Guy Rundle in Melbourne by the magic of the internet. Hi Guy. Hi Bernard, how are you? Good, good. Well, it's um, it's now, we're now four or five days into an Abbott government. Not much has happened so far. Um, rather than talk specifically on the election, um, I thought we might kick off by looking a bit more historically perhaps and maybe maybe a bit more sociologically um in, in the space of the last six years um australians have kicked out two governments that um that made a pretty good fist of, of managing the economy the, the howard government presided over um more money than they knew what to do with in the end in terms of uh, in terms of the budget uh, rising incomes for australians very low unemployment and the rudd gillard rudd government um, made a pretty reasonable fist of things too, not so much on the budget front, but um, but in terms of managing the response to a financial crisis, managing a mining boom, which in, historically has always delivered inflationary explosions to the Australian economy. They managed to avoid that. Um, and yet they got kicked out every bit as much as, um, uh, as, as well, uh, somewhat more than the Howard government got kicked out. Voters keep telling pollsters that the economy is the most important thing when it comes to influencing their vote, and yet, um, you know, it uh, you know being a good economic manager doesn't actually seem to do do you much good, no matter whether you're uh, the coalition or Labor. What's what's going on in the minds of Australian voters? Why why are they, why if the economy is so important are they booting out good economic managers? Yeah, it's it's really interesting and very sort of counterintuitive and counter to everything that's happened in the world you know we've had uh, you know 20 plus years without a recession and both times we've we've kicked out people who've managed the different problems of the economy in different ways to success and we've not only kicked them out but we've kicked them out with some sort of uh, uh, contempt and despite you know Howard was the big hero and then suddenly he lost his seat and he was gone and it was you know, don't let the door hit your hit your ass. And then, of course, Rudd is just a, a despised scapegoat. It, it seems that several things are going on. And, and the first and most important thing is that the, uh, the least valued virtue in politics is gratitude. You know, gratitude won't get you anywhere. Sooner or later, people start to come to accept a situation, I think, that's gone on for so long that they've lost the capacity to understand the risk or what the alternative could have been. And I think once that happens, um, then fairly minor problems uh, start to get amplified as fairly major problems. So what we have on the one hand is an economy that's growing, but it's also starting to slow in its rate of acceleration, I think. And uh, the, the, the gears are starting to grind a bit. And I think people are feeling that in their own lives, you know, this these decades of expansions we've we've had in people's uh, people's ability to to spend discretionary money, to to go out, to you know, the ways our cities have changed, you know, and have just become these these enormous sort of galleries of of entertainment and luxury and pleasure and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, these once once that starts to happen, you you have this cycle whereby. Um, you know, as, as, as they used to say, uh, today's desires are tomorrow's needs. And uh, and once you get that, you have a very specific sort of dissatisfaction sets in. It's a dissatisfaction that um, can't be easily captured uh, by the old 
political nostrums of, you know, as long as people have a chicken in every pot or a roof over their head or they're not faced with penury or anything like that. They want something more, but uh, they don't quite know what it is except an endless expansion, which would still leave them dissatisfied. I mean, that's one factor, I think. The, um, the, this seems to me what Tony Abbott did and, and this election just passed seems to me to have quite a few parallels with 2007. And one of the things that Tony Abbott very successfully did was play to the, 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 the electorate sense that, um, you know, things should be better, that mm. they should personally be better off. Just in the same way that Kevin Rudd spent a lot of his time before the 2007 election basically getting across the message that John Howe was out of touch, didn't understand how tough things were for people. Mm. This is th That was after 15 plus years of, of incomes rising much more rapidly than inflation. Um, uh, I, you tell voters that um, that they're doing it tough and um, and they seem to nod their heads and agree with you and um, uh, and be ready to um, be ready to uh, to put a one next to your name. Well, it is. And it really is an expansion of necessities. I mean, you know, let's think of a time before um, pay TV or, or anything like that. And let's think of that. And let's try telling people now that pay TV is, is an extreme luxury and you should you should be able to do without it. It's not. It's obviously not. It, it has to be factored into a household budget. And if there's a whole lot of things like that where the, the oligopolies who run them start to pump in price rises and things like that, well, you really do start to feel the squeeze. You start to feel the squeeze if you want to, if you think it should be natural to update your smartphone every time there's a new model mm. uh, and, and those sorts of things. You, you start to feel feel it as a deprivation. And Tony Abbott tapped into that, but he also tapped, and that's the micro everyday level, but he then connected that to the macro level that people were watching, which which was the level of debt and the level of deficit. And to his enormous luck, Labor never pushed back on that. Labor never made the strong case that, um, you know, uh, deficit, the, 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 the deficit saved saved us from the from the GFC roll-on. The debt is, is not necessarily a bad thing um, in an area of cheap money that we need to build infrastructure and so forth and so on. Labor never made that case. And so it was just left lying there for Tony Abbott to say, well, look at all this debt. This is horrendous. And, and that bewilders me. That absolutely bewilders me because that seemed to win the election. On the trail, everybody was talking about um, the debt in a way that uh, acted as if it was their own sort of... Foolish, their own personal debt. Yeah. yeah, as if they'd foolishly taken a second mortgage and they were waking up at night thinking about it. It felt like an imposition. And that was just, you know, a vacuum of explanation on, of Labor's part. It's something Keating would never have let lie. Keating would have, and this is how Keating, you know, one in, in the Hawke Keating years, explain what they were doing, explain, 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 and there was none of that. Well, there was a key moment in the 2009 budget, I think it was, when Rudd refused to uh, say what the, what, the, what the budget deficit was and then refused, when he was asked specifically, mm. to put the words billion and uh, might have been 59 or 54 oh, but, that's right, yes. um, together and in, order to, in order to obviously to avoid providing some sort of soundbite. But that, that seemed to be a crucial moment in Labor saying, well, we're going to accept the coalition's framing of the economic debate here. We're not going to make the case that you need an activist government to prop up the economy yeah. in the face of, of global financial turmoil. Um, we're going to accept the argument that debt is a bad thing. We're ashamed of it. And if you act as though you're ashamed of debt yeah. and deficit, 
then um, well, people you people are going to people are going to be convinced by you and uh, and and accept that framing. And they never recovered from that, particularly when they they got to 2010 and they began saying, well, we're going to race back to deficit in within within three years. It was basically a vindication of the coalition's uh, the coalition's basic position that uh, you know deficit politics or, or you know, governing with a deficit was uh, was an innately bad yeah. thing that needed to be avoided they, they conceded that that dickensian idea you know that uh, <clears throat> 20 pounds 20 pounds income 20 you know 19 pounds nine shillings expenditure happiness mm. 20 pounds income 20 pounds one shilling expenditure misery and mm. so once they do that they let this this methodist conservative myth of a household economy come in that, that a household economy is like a national economy um, and a national economy is like a household economy, and then they misconstruct a household economy as one that's always in surplus. Mm. And I mean, he, most of us are labouring under quite yeah. enormous mortgage. Well, a good a good solid whack of us are, are labouring under a large mortgage. So. And I never understand why they don't say, who's got a mortgage here? Why did you get a mortgage? To have a good home for your kids. What was your mortgage worth? What was your salary worth? Well, you've got a debt of 400% of your GDP. Mm. I don't understand mm. why any time a small businessman gets up uh, and says, and da, 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 why have we got all this debt? They don't go, well, have you, did you have an overdraft? Did you get an overdraft? Mm. So, yeah, there was a total lack of that, and they fought on, and they started in the last week or two just to half-heartedly sort of talk about this. But, um, I mean, I for me, as, as someone, you know, um, not knowing the, the real details of the deficits that Labor ran up after the GFC one, there is a question political question then of whether they were um, running up a higher level of deficit than the Australian public really wanted and whether if they'd just run up uh, the deficits in the GFC and then started to go in the other direction, um, then they would have been accorded yet another term, as in saying we responded appropriately, but we didn't let it run away from us. Yeah, I think think that was their overall strategy, but they were cruel by the fact that... um uh, the post-GFC economy was a different kind of economy yeah. to the one that they, uh, the one that the Howard government got. It was a, it was a low growth, well, mm. sort of low nominal growth economy that made it much more difficult. And not just, it hasn't been more difficult just for the federal government. It's been tougher for state governments as well. Yeah. That's why Colin Barnett is going to run the WA economy into a deficit next year, yeah. be, despite the fact that they've got a mining boom going on yeah. over there. It's, you know, it's, it's just tougher for all governments. So, um, yeah. um, I, I mean, Tony Abbott's going to have to face, and Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey have to face this sort of challenge now. I wonder how Abbott will cope with the same, what I suspect will be the same eventual sense of letdown mm. on the part of the electorate mm. uh, that he hasn't cured all their rules. He hasn't delivered, mm. um, you know, massive growth in in incomes. Um, that uh, and in fact, inflation's so low at the moment, it can't really help but go higher. Mm. Uh, I just wonder whether Tony Abbott's going to face the same problems that Kevin Rudd eventually faced, which is you go to the electorate and, and you get elected on the basis of saying, hey, I'm going to fix your, sta- your, your cost of living. I'm going to make things better. I know you're doing it tough. I'm going to make it better. Mm. And then, you know, after a year or so, or perhaps it's less now, voters start saying, well, hang on, you know, what's what's going on here? I just wonder whether, whether Tony Abbott's got the, um, you know, going to be able to successfully deal with that. Maybe he's, maybe his political smarts are going to be better than Labor's in terms of yeah. of, um, of convincing voters that uh, it's not all, his, not all his fault. It's going to be very interesting because there's all sorts of problems. I mean, Abbott has promised most of the Labor program plus the PPL. So, you know, as, as we were saying during the election, 
um, he has conceded a lot of the ideological ground to Labor. He's he's accepted, and I think it's an enormous acceptance that we are basically a social market, if you like, or even a mildly social democratic society. And you know that's definitely not what um, the Sinodinuses and, and the, the the free market cabal within the Liberal Party would want uh, would want to have have to have signed up to. And and so you know yeah, there's there's. So it seems to me there'll be multiple layers of stuff. He's got to square that with with um, with making some effort towards moving in a direction of surplus, and then he's got all all sorts of multiple global instability um, in terms of where this global economy is going, what's going to happen to China. Um, you know, it's you know this is how history goes. Until something happens, it's unimaginable. But when it after it's happened, you know, a sort of 9-11 type event or something like that, um, you can't think of any other way it would have happened. Now, mm, mm. I mean, China especially is very interesting because one of the things about China is it has, uh, in all its budgeting, in all its sort of balance sheets that it broadcasts to the world, it has 27 regional governments and regional government borrowings, huge amounts of them don't really appear on those balance sheets. So, mm. so, and that's what's funded a lot of the, you know, the huge urban boom in China. So, so we may well find out that, you know, China is a shell game in a year or two. There's all sorts of things that, that will be very interesting for, for Abbott. And that, of course, will affect our, um, you know, our export profile and, and our whole economic setup. Hey, Abbott, Abbott fascinates me as a politician because he's not, he, he seems to me ideologically, despite that line from years and years ago that he's a love child or, sorry, or ideological love child of, 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 of Howard and Bishop, from and Bishop, that is. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's not go there. Um, the, 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 he really, he, his ideological sort of origins are much more uh, left wing than that. They are, they are within, certainly in, in economic terms, not in social terms, but in economic terms. Uh, you know, he's a much more natural fit with the DLP. John O. Johnson, the you know right-wing uh, <laughs> patriarch of, of New South Wales Labor, uh, was a good mate of his and, and tried to get him to join the Labor. But he's a he's a poor fit, and we saw this on industrial relations with with work choices. Uh, he was he he was one of the few within cabinet who opposed work choices uh, back under the Howard government, partly because I think his political antennae kind of bristled a bit about it. But uh, he's not a natural fit for. Um, for the Liberals. Now, Malcolm Turnbull wasn't a natural fit for the Liberals either, but but he wasn't a natural fit on social issues exactly. either. Yeah. And uh, that's, I think, what alienated uh, a lot of the Liberal base. The Liberal base loved Tony Abbott, but uh, yeah. but he's a poor fit for them. And now that he's Prime Minister with a whopping majority, yeah. you know, the chances of, of his colleagues curbing that, I, 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 I think, are less than they were in opposition. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they had to sign, you know, they elected him by one vote and someone yelled out in the party room, my God, what have we done? You know, it's it's the same. It's the Hail Mary pass that, they, that Labor made with Latham. Didn't work with Latham, worked with Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, if, as you know, if you read David Marr's book, you know, about Abbott, yeah, as you say, Abbott was a diehard, you know, DLP Santa Mariaite. He's Santa Maria's last disciple. Uh, in 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 major Australian politics, and in student politics in the 70s, these guys said, you know, we need a bigger party. We need to to, to burrow into a bigger party, uh, and take it over if we're going to have influence. Otherwise, we're just a small small group. Now they couldn't take over the AL the Labor Club because basically the Labor Club was Marxist at the time at Sydney Uni. So Abbott entered the they entered the Liberals and the. 
and now you know the parasite has become the host it's it's like it's it's a real sort of bodily invasion and as you say i mean abbott's politics are taken directly from from catholic social movement teaching you know rerum novarum going back to the 1890s and that's where the labor rights sort of social policy comes from it's the idea mm. that uh, society is made up of corporate entities uh, which relate to each other as collectives and you know, there's a business collective and there's a you know there used to be a peasants collective and there's a a labor collective so so you know that rules out socialism because we've all got to get on together but these elements must always have their collective uh, issuance and will and that then relates to the idea of a living wage and the idea that the wage shouldn't be determined by brute market forces and mm, law mm. of master and servant and and you're right that you know now how how much abbott has strayed from that or come back to it that sort of stuff that sort of stuff is with him not the not the neoliberal you know stuff um of the other liberals or simply their their shonky sort of you know united australia party of old business-led um mm. uh, let's run the joint you know let's run the joint like a, a real estate corporation so that's yeah that's going to be really interesting whether they will start to try you know their desperate desire is to move on fair work and and get work choices too up but uh but what will happen to that is yeah be very interesting and while uh, well, while while Abbott gets on with governing, Labor gets on with picking up the pieces. The the I suppose the issue du jour is 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 apart from the leadership itself is um, is the process by which the leadership is is going to be decided. Stephen Conroy has staked out his territory on that issue. We we knew all along he opposed the uh, the Rudd reform of giving the party um, a a say in the election of um, of the leader. Uh, Bill Shorten's come out today and said he basically thinks it's a good process and Labor needs to re-engage uh, not just with its own membership but but try and reach out. Um, the Brits, both the Tories and Labor, uh, now have a um, a uh, and have had for some time a uh, a process by which party members have a have a have a role in the election uh, of the leader. Uh, Australian political journalists seem to think that the whole thing's uh, just a recipe for chaos, but uh, it, doesn't, it seems to work okay in the UK. I mean, it's um, someone like Tony Blair's come out of that process, David Cameron's come out of that process, you know, Ian Duncan Smith's come out of that process too. But but <laughs> yeah, but as you but as you say, you know, who's come out of the the party only the, the caucus only process? Yeah, you're quite right. It's it's um I mean the pro you know. Everybody in the Labor Party, when Ed Miliband got elected over David Miliband, said, well, this is this shows that the process has failed. You know, so so the Labor Party, as you know, organises it in three tranches. You have the, uh, the, the, the MPs, you have the trade unions and you have the party uh, branch membership and they each get a third of the vote. And, you know, Ed Miliband lost the MPs vote handsomely. Um, Won the won the union vote handsomely, and I think just won the branches mm. narrowly. So the end result was very very close. It was it? very it was extremely close, and then yes, and so the argument then was that for the first two years or so he didn't have the confidence of most of the people sitting behind him, uh, and a lot of the people were trying to white hand him or just sitting on their hands until he failed, and then the Tory government failed, and. Ed Miliband is is leading by you know Labor's leading by 11 percent now you know John McTurnan says that Ed Miliband will be the next Labor Prime Minister but despite that I think Ed Miliband will be the next Labor Prime Minister. 
Yes, well, John, John, John's political crystal balls a little, <laughs> little bit, a little bit scratched, and uh, and uh, and needs a bit it's of a good shine uh, at the moment. The, interest, and, and the, the interesting thing is just that Labor is already today, you know, just falling apart as soon as it gets up again. We've got, you know, what, what's his name? Um, Tony Champion, is that it? Uh, Nick, Nick Champion. From Nick Champion. MSA. Yeah, Nick Champion and uh, and Richard Miles out basically sort of on Sky News and then Nick Champion in the Oz and Richard Miles getting a generous mention in the Oz uh, sort of spruiking on, on, on something that you, on carbon tax, on whether you let it through or not, which is something you would think with a political party would discuss in caucus. I mean... Mm. This idea that you know you get out on day one and you just you're just openly discussing uh, that sort of stuff seems to me to be either such a it's all about such a, a race of positioning and an upmanship and getting your name in it that that it's 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 still dysfunctional um, or it's just pure dysfunctionality that, that they don't know how to talk. You know, well, I, I like Champion's reason that, that Labor, the, the Labor base hates markets and they hate the Greens and, and carbon pricing is like an evil combination of the two and um, uh, and, and it should be got rid of. I mean, there's, there's a certain logic to say, look, um, uh, put aside the mandate rubbish, but there's a certain logic to say, well, look, you know, uh, Tony Abbott is proposing, uh, you know, a ridiculous uh, climate change program. Let's give him his way and, yeah. and let, it, uh, let it fall apart. But um, uh, you're quite right that that sort of that sort of tactical uh, playing out and, and sort of wargaming is probably best done behind closed doors. I mean, I remember, I remember after the 2007 election when Labor moved very quickly to to repeal uh, work choices, the Liberals had a similar public <laughs> public debate about what to do about it, and then they looked at absolute shambles. It wasn't the the, the, the shambles hadn't come from. Uh, Anything to do with the leadership? The shambles came from a public playing out of uh, of, of a debate that that you know is best is best kept indoors. There's a room for public. There's always room for public debate, of course. Mm. But uh, but when it comes down to sort of political uh, uh, tactics and positioning the party for, on a key issue, um, you know, to have backbenchers sort of roll out and start firing shots is a um, uh, is a is a peculiar way to go about it, to say the least. It's, it's yeah, it's very interesting that it's it it bespeaks a lack of confidence in being able to say to people, talk to people about what the idea of a political party is as a collective. So the idea used to be that a party of like-minded people get together and they have differences within that party, and in a closed system they sort out those differences, decide on a policy, and then present it to the public. And that was what a party did. Now, if you say that today there seems to be something very sinister about that to a lot of people. The whole idea of having a caucus and deciding what you think, arguing it out uh, in private and then saying we're going in this direction, not that direction. And that would seem to me to be a, a result of the changed nature of social life, the changed nature of privacy and publicity, of openness, not just of the 24-hour news cycle, but of uh, of the changed barriers between... Uh, between inner and outer, so so that we no longer think of ourselves as as in those sorts of of closed groups, and anyone who starts to try and do that, starts to try and enforce that, starts to run into some very major cultural problems, which is really interesting because it means that in order to try and reunify a group like the Labor Party, 
uh, it, it's like a pen and teller act, you know, that those those magicians who mm. uh, who do all their magic out in the open with glass boxes and that sort of thing. And it still looks like magic, but you can see everything going on. Well, these guys are sort of like failed pen and tellers. They do it all out in the open and the magic doesn't work. And and they, and they all talk, isn't it? There's no silent one amongst them. Yeah, yeah. They're all spoken. Well, I mean, the Greens have a similar. I mean, the Greens still stick to the approach of we will develop our policy behind closed doors and and uh, uh, and not let the media in, not let not let the public in. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was Annabelle Crabb that, that that said that that had. Um, actually, she was talking about something else. She was talking about the fact that they didn't tell anyone about Sarah Hansen Young standing for the deputy leadership, but the the, the media sort of condemned it as uh, as the height of. Um, of arrogance to to um, actually want to develop policy out of sight of the media, mm. uh, rather than rather than putting it all on show. The whiff of Pyongyang was Annabelle Crabb's phrase about uh, about their uh, preference for keeping internal matters internal. Yeah, and um, that is that that has a proprietary air to it. That you know, in in an era when we just have these rolling news cycles, the the, the idea that that uh, that people should sort out their arguments and then present them to the public as take us or leave us. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, can't help but have a, a a sinister overtone. But it's it's both a lack of understanding of of what uh, real party politics, collective politics, should be, uh, and also also the idea that that I think that the the media should run it, but should people should be accountable, not every, you know not with a closed not with a finished set of policies, but every half hour mm. on mm. what they're thinking. Um, and finally, Clive Palmer. Um, the, the plutocrat politician, he, from a standing start, he's, um, he's established a political party with, um, uh, well, possibly a couple of senators, at least one senator, possibly two, possibly Clive himself. Self in Fairfax, yeah. On, on display in the House of Representatives. I can't believe Clive will actually do it, but, but uh, I, I can believe he'll win the seat. I can't believe he'll actually appear in the, uh, in the House of Reps, sit next to Adam, sit between Adam Bant and Bob Catter. Um, just behind Kathy McGowan and uh, and just ahead of Andrew Wilkie and um, you can imagine uh, Band and Catter. It's like being on a flight, uh, you know. And there's a in the three bank thing in the middle, and there you're on one side and someone else is on the other, and you see a 400 pound bloke coming towards <laughs> you, and you're praying, don't, don't, don't be 23, unerringly, 23 D. So I mean, uh, yeah, I think I think. I think the thing with Palmer is, yeah, he's got ADHD or something. His concentration span is nowhere. So he will actually be excited to go there. And then five weeks in, you know, just when he's listening to an adjournment debate or, you know, the parliament sends greetings to the Lismore Girl Scouts on there, that sort of thing, he, he'll just be he'll just be jack of it and God knows what will happen. I mean, they say he spent $12 million on this, this election, which doesn't surprise me, $12 million for 5% from a zero start, he had uh, a candidate in each electorate and he had an apparatus in each electorate and he created these apparatuses, as far as I can tell, in a lot of places by finding um, ethnic groups uh, with a, a sort of local, you know, the local Sri Lankan or, um, organisation in Lidicum or somewhere like that and finding, you know, people just putting their hands up and saying, I'd like to be a Palmer United candidate and basically being able to deliver a block of votes mm. so so there's that and then there is also the fact i think that he does people you know people have said that it's all it's all chaos and clive and that sort of thing but there's a not inconsistent uh basically libertarian sort of uh politics there it's 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 the uh idea of low tax and you know that you only get the economy going by returning it to the to the private spender 
you know, this vague idea that government spending is non-spending, which is a whiff of American libertarianism. Mm. And I think that connects to his, you know, more, more uh, you know, reasonable stand on, on processing uh, asylum seekers and boat arrivals. Because if you're going to be, if you make less distinction on how people get here and if you want a more open migration policy and uh, an expanding labour force and a big Australia... Well, that all makes sense. And I think that that's, you know, quite aside from the celebs and the dinosaurs and that sort of thing and the anti-politics vote and all that, I think he, especially in Queensland, he found a constituency for that. I think people people forget about Clive that he was Joe Bajorky Peterson's um, media advisor and mm. obviously worked 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 with you know, Robert Sparks and all those national luminaries of, of the of the seventies and the eighties. And I don't see too much madness in his uh, his you know, rabid utterings. I see a lot of method. I think I think this is a bloke who saw the success that Joe Bajorky Peterson had with uh, the the apparent apparent incoherence of mm. communication. Uh, and uh, and picked and picked it up and and he seems to have that Bajorky Peterson like capacity to say absolutely anything, mm. no matter how ridiculous, mm. and yet still uh, and yet still attract a vote. I mean, running around saying Rupert Murdoch's ex is a uh, is a spy. Yeah. The, the Greens are in bed with the CIA. I mean, you know, the guy's obviously nuts, and yet obviously not nuts because uh, because you know he he clearly had some you know he clearly had something that resonated with voters. Yeah. Well, that is. I mean, that really the Wendy Ding's a, a Chinese spy. That was really when we were getting to. The to the gonzo hunter s thompson level of the campaign it was just and i think that sort of created a you know i think it all just creates a level of delight you know a campaign an election campaign is a carnival as well as a a governmental process and the, the the process is always that the serious process is always slipping into the carnival esque and someone like clive decides that he'll just place his his feet firmly in the center of the carnival and the carnival, and, and it'll come to him. And especially with a campaign like this, which started, you know, for, for all they tried to pretend it was about great differences of vision, the major parties are offering very similar things and then asking us, us to uh, to vote for them based on different, different costings and different sort of slow, fast approaches on things like Gonski. And once, once you're two weeks into a campaign like that, the boredom is so intolerable that you start to get the giggles. And that's when we started to get, you know, the sex appeal gaffes and the suppository gaffes and the hair and the this and the that. And so, yeah, and so the last couple of weeks were basically Clive's, I think, because he was doing it, um, he was doing it 24-7. So, um, and then smuggling these serious, you know, serious policies and messages in at the same time. And also, you know, by that measure, also grabbing a bunch of Bob Catter's votes because mm. it was, you know... Yep different style you know clive is the coastal queensland style and catter is the inland country style but both you know sort of old huey long populists uh you know they you know they call me they call me a drongo they call me a hick they call all of you hicks well let's all be hicks and drongos together and screw them and uh yeah you know i'm glad it was there (laughs) well i mean we we look forward to uh to clive palmer's maiden speech uh, i reckon um (laughs) Guy, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, uh, Bernard. It's, it's been, been great. a pleasure. Cheers. Right. We'll talk again soon. And thank you to our uh, all our, our, our three or four listeners. Uh, it's always good to have you along, and we'll talk to you again next week, we hope. <laughs>